Galatians 1, verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men, nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. I am, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Together. Our Lord and our God, as we turn now to your word, we need to hear your voice. We need to understand our dependence upon you, our lostness without you. Teach us your truth. Stir our obedience. Be glorified in us, we ask, through Christ our Lord. Amen. If you can use your imagination with me, imagine it's a beautiful summer's day and you uh, decide it's time to go to the beach, you pack your picnic lunch and your flask of tea, you head off and wonder of wonders, there's a space right at the front row in the car park where you can sit in the car and have your lunch and look out at all the activity on the beach. The breeze is getting up and the lifeguard has raised a red flag to say it's no longer suitable for swimming. The, tr- the tides can be very treacherous on this stretch of the coast. And you notice a father, a son, they're throwing a beach ball back and forward to each other at the water's edge. They throw it and the wind lifts it into the waves and the father wades in to retrieve it. But the offshore wind is driving it out quickly and he, he's nearly reached it, not quite there. And it moves a little bit further. He says, a couple of swimming strokes will get me there. And so he swims gently toward the ball, but... Before he can grab it, the currents have grabbed him. He's being pulled out to sea by a strong riptide. And within moments, he's struggling to stay afloat. The lifeguard on duty notices his dilemma. And with rescue board in hand, she rushes into the sea. And you watch and you pray as she swims towards him, trying herself to battle with the strength of the current. She comes alongside the floundering man and helps him to get onto the the rescue board. And then for what seems like an age, the two struggle to get back to the safety of the shore. 
Once they stumble through the surf, the two lie exhausted on the beach. And then, in utter amazement, the lifeguard looks up, astonished to see this recently rescued father beginning once again to wade back through the waves towards the now far distant beach ball. That's a ridiculous idea. No one having been rescued would put their life in peril again, would they? I share the story simply to try and give you some feeling for the incredulity that would be in the the mind of the lifeguard to see someone do such a foolish thing. But that sense of astonishment would be immeasurably surpassed by what the Apostle Paul is experiencing in the lives of the Galatians, these friends to whom he writes in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. These Galatian Christians, so recently rescued from a hell-bound destiny, are once again wading their way back out into the ocean of sin. They had been rescued from this, but they returned to it again. And Paul cannot express in strong enough terms the, the, the horror he feels at their actions. They had been lifted out of the pit of destruction, out of the Mary bog, but, but straightway it looks as if they're trying to dive in and go bog snorkeling again. And Paul writes, he writes of their desertion, their desertion. I mentioned this last Sunday, and, and this is personal. This is personal. This is not a, a matter of theology. It's, it's not a matter of ethics. It's a matter about a relationship. The God we come to worship is, is, is one person, Jesus Christ, our Savior. And when you turn your back on the gospel, you're turning your back on him. And in him and him alone lies our hope. Without him there is no salvation. Again, look at Paul's words. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Now the Greek word here is is a a word we understand from military context. Desertion. Deserting on the battlefield. And we know how greatly that is... uh, objectionable someone to to betray your colleagues, to leave them to go and fight and and you to hide away. That's a terrible thing to desert in the heat of battle. But, But this is much, much worse. For this is changing sides. This is not uh, fighting with your colleagues, but this is fighting against them. This is joining the side of the enemy, playing the part of the traitor, the turncoat. For there is no neutrality in these things. Either you stand with Jesus Christ or you stand against him. But this idea of desertion is not just in in military, it's also in marriage. For this is personal. Galatians are deserting Jesus. He is the one to whom they had pledged their affection. Jesus, through his sacrificial death on the cross, has rescued them. He has brought them into his family. They are pledged to him. They are betrothed to him in in marriage. As part of the church, they are part of the bride of Christ. But now they are turning their back on him in an act of unfaithfulness. 
You're familiar, I hope, with the uh, teaching of the prophecy of Hosea. Where Hosea takes this unfaithful wife, Gomer, and, and she uh, goes back to her lovers, back to her prostitution. That's, in a sense, what, what Paul sees here with the Galatians. Or elsewhere, Ephesians 5.1, Paul writes to Christians and saying, you're dearly loved children. And imagine these children, that it's as though they are like the prodigal, saying farewell to the father, taking from him all that he has provided, but they, they run away from his purposes and plans. Or one final illustration, it's like Lazarus having, having been resurrected from his uh, grave clothes bondage, once again getting strips of linen and wrapping them around himself and making his way back to the tomb. Having been rescued, freed and forgiven, these Galatian Christians once again through their choices are placing themselves in harm's way. How? How? Because they are turning to Another gospel. Not the truth which Paul had shared with them. They're deserting. There is an act of desertion. The four points of all D's. Desertion, the second one, is a distortion. Distortion, verse 7. They were, as we read, turning to another gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Some years ago, I was preaching through this book in, in my days in Randallstown. Uh, through the wonders of technology, all those sermons are now lost as my hard disk fried. So for good or ill, I don't know what that is. But uh, at that time, we had a great big banner to my left on the wall, 10 foot long, whatever it said. And, and it just bore the message, no other gospel. No other gospel. That's the summary of the whole of the book of Galatians. No other gospel. And the most dangerous gospel, alternate gospel, is not the one that is radically different. Not the one that is obviously different, but the one that is subtly different. If someone gives you £20 change in monopoly money, you are not going to accept it. And if you are going to accept it, could you see me afterwards? Because I have a £100 note here that needs changed. No, no, you can see the obvious. You realize that that can't be real money. You are not fooled by something that looks completely different. But if it looks like the real thing and it feels a bit like the real thing, well then you can be easily deceived. I was reading or watching a little video. The Bank of England has a little video about how to identify proper banknotes. And these new polymer notes, they each have a large see-through window that bears a portrait of the Queen. And over that see-through window is a foil layer that has two different colours on the front and the back. And below the window is a foil hologram that, that changes as you move it to reveal the amount of value of the note. And above the window is a, a 3D coronation crown. You'll all be getting your money out just to check it has all those things now. And once one of those items isn't present, if any one of them is missing from your banknote, it's worthless. Just one to be absent means it loses all its value. And so it is with the gospel. Once you change it, once you distort the truth at any point, its worth is gone completely. 
And Paul, as we noted last Sunday, is particularly concerned about those who add to the gospel. Those who distort it by making additional demands. In the book of Acts, in chapter 15, Luke helps us understand where this problem arose. Just to read one verse. Luke, or Acts 15, verse 1. Luke records. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now these people were, were not dismissing the gospel message that Paul had presented, but they were adding to it. Yes, they still proclaimed the death and resurrection of Jesus, but they spoke of other necessary elements that had to be acquired for true Christian faith. And look, they had come from Judea. They had come from the birthplace of Christianity. And they came quoting the Bible to add to their arguments. They, 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 they seemed strong. They seemed credible in what they said. And they appeared to be people of authority. They had connections with Church HQ back in Jerusalem. And consequently, the Galatian Christians were misled. These Judaizers, as they're called, came requiring Gentile Christians to live as Jews, to be circumcised, to adhere to the regulations of the Mosaic law. And the bottom line is this, that what they wanted was that these new Christians would think like them, act like them, and look like them. And we do this, and I've done it. We decide that if someone's really to be a Christian, they have to hold to the same standards as I do. And many of those have nothing to do with the gospel. I think of the story of the, the young person who was invited along with a friend uh, to a, a youth weekend of one of my former congregations. And while this uh, young man was at the weekend, he, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. So he was encouraged to go back home and, and to share the good news with his minister. And his minister told him that he couldn't possibly have become a Christian at an event that was organized by the Presbyterian Church. And the message was this, by all means, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But do so with inside our restrictive religious body. And what is done so frequently today is that same error that Paul here opposes. The opponents of the apostle were eager that Gentiles coming to faith in Jesus Christ would place themselves under restrictive religious bond. Their message be, by all means, become a Christian, but by all means, become a Christian just like me. And we do this. Every denomination does this. Every fellowship does this. We make additional unbiblical requirements of people. Particularly within, within our Northern Irish context. We want people to be like us. Or else they really can't be Christians, can they? We add additional requirements to the gospel. And, and, and let me give you a couple of these. And most of these have been my assumptions in the past. And maybe still are some of them today. You can't be a real Christian. You don't attend the prayer meeting. 
You can't be a real Christian if you don't come to church twice on a Sunday. You can't be a real Christian if you read a different version of the Bible from me. You can't be a real Christian if you don't give generously or if you don't tithe to the church. You can't be a real Christian if you struggle with same-sex attraction. You can't be a real Christian if you worship in a Roman Catholic church. And so it goes on and we'll leave it before it gets too sensitive. We are a reformed church which declares with boldness that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are saved. This and this alone is the only way in which we can be justified before God. This is what sets us in a right relationship with God and makes us Christians, and it is nothing else. And to add anything else is to distort the gospel. And as we journey through this letter, we will see that the faith alone that saves is not alone. That that faith that saves is also a faith that that generates uh, by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit of God and the life of belief of the fruits of the Spirit. To show that we are distinct and and shows that God is at work in us. But in, in the first instance, always, 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 it is grace alone, or faith alone, the grace alone that, and Christ alone that saves. Desertion, distortion. The third D is damnation. Paul's message is uncompromising. He writes, Verses 8 and 9, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now this is the age of tolerance. At times it seems that in our society every view must be tolerated except those of uh, evangelical Christian. But Paul here doesn't soft soap sin. There's no tolerance given. This is far too important for him to moderate his language, to measure his tone. It's a matter of life and death. And just in case we missed it, just in case we weren't paying attention He says it twice, let him be accursed. My distant relative, the 19th century Bible commentator, John Brown of Haddington, says this. The apostle repeats it to show the Galatians that this was no excessive, exaggerated statement into which passion had hurried him, but his calmly formed, unalterable opinion. Paul declares damnation on those who alter the gospel. And he includes in that, under that umbrella himself, should he stray or his colleagues, should they stray in this manner. And of course the inclination is to say, well Paul, could you, could you not tone it down a bit? Could you not be a bit more like Jesus? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The one who was tolerant and compassionate of others. Do you need to be so harsh, Paul? Then you remember what Jesus said in in Mark 9.42. He said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. There is to be no tolerance shown to sin, nor to those who lead others into sin. 
But, but more importantly, avoiding the dangers of man-centered thinking here, there is to be no toleration, no tolerance shown to those who deprive Jesus Christ of glory. Those who diminish the worth of his finished work upon the cross. Suggesting that you know, through our actions, through our endeavors, we can complete what he started. Remember we sang last Sunday morning, Jesus paid it all. We didn't sing Jesus paid it mostly. The Westminster Confession of Faith, our subordinate standard, on occasion uses strong language. And some people find it difficult. But when there is an error to be confronted, strong language must be used. Whether it's Roman Catholicism or Arminianism or some other distortion of the gospel. It must be condemned, not for the honor of the Reformed faith, but for the honor of the name of Jesus Christ and his glory. Desertion, distortion, damnation, and finally, deception. Deception. If you are looking for something to do after lunch this morning, can I encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Kings 13. And in 1 Kings chapter 13, there's a really tragic story. A story of an unnamed prophet. God sends this man. He commissions him. He goes to bring a a word of condemnation against the evil king of Israel, King Jeroboam. He delivers his message. And having done so, he's on his way back home. He was from the south, from Judea, and he's making his way along. And as he does, he's intercepted by another prophet. And we pick up the story in verse 15 of 1 Kings chapter 13. The prophet says, come home with me and eat. And he said, I may not return with you or go in with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you into your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. The story ends with the first prophet being killed by a lion in this very surreal situation where the, 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 the slain body of the prophet lies on the road and the lion stands on one side and his donkey on the other. And you think, what on earth is going on here in this story? Why did such a tragedy, such a harsh judgment come upon this faithful servant of God who who put his life on the line going from Judah into Israel to condemn the king? Why did he have to die in this way? His only feeling was to be deceived by another prophet. And, And this man told him that an angel had spoke to him. Surely he was right to believe him. And the point of 1 Kings 13, and the point that Paul is making here, is that when God's word comes to us, we dare not disobey it. Yes, the man had been deceived. Yes, this prophet was foolish. And the one who deceived him was very plausible. But he ought not to have been deceived because God had spoken his word to him. And that message was clear. And God doesn't send a second message to contradict the first one. And these Judaizers, they were very convincing. 
The Galatians had heard God's word proclaimed through Paul. And they ought not to have been deceived. They ought not to have been enticed astray from the truth of Paul's proclamation. If you have your Bible open at Galatians, if you flick over just a couple of pages, 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4, Paul writes this. He says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. See, this wasn't a Galatian problem. This was a church problem. It wasn't just a a first century problem. It's a danger to the church in every age. And perhaps all the more as the end approaches. God's people must be on their guard against deception. We must know the word of God. Know its truth and obey it. One of the arguments made against Paul is in that last little verse, verse 10. Which he defends himself and says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant or a bond slave of Christ. You see, Paul died to defend his message. As John MacArthur says, By nature, people pleasers are not martyrs. No, Paul's word could be trusted because he received it from Christ. He was not a deceiver. So three quick, brief application points. Number one, the church, in the words of Jude, verse 3, must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We must fight for the purity of the gospel. Number two, sinners must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This message that Paul proclaimed, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. We must proclaim the power of the gospel. And those who do not believe are not saved and they remain under the curse of sin. Either Jesus bears that curse on our behalf on the cross or you bear it yourself in eternity on hell. And so we must warn of the penalty of the gospel. Fight for the purity, proclaim the power and warn of the penalty of the gospel. This is too serious to trifle with. May we believe it, receive it, and defend it until God shall call us home. Let's pray together. Father, we realize that Paul would not have written these words if this threat were not before us. He writes to the Galatians, but he writes to us all in every generation. The gospel is powerful, it transforms, it brings new and eternal life, and our enemy hates it, and he will seek to destroy it and distort it. He will confuse, he will add, he will meddle. May we know your truth, may we know the word of God, and may we obey it, may we apply it to our lives. May we guard the gospel. May we contend for its purity. May we see its power at work among us as men, women, boys and girls come to that 
life-transforming, eternity-rearranging faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, may we know that only in Christ is our hope. Only in Him is our help. We do not do this through our own strength or power, but in utter dependence upon Him, the one through whom we pray. Amen.